You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Good morning, church. It's very nice to see you this morning. Uh, we're glad you're here. If you're joining us online, like Lynn said, we're happy you could join us this morning. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but the makeup artist that Simon uses every morning, whoop, they did work on me, but I still have a, uh, like, I don't know. A messed up area of my face here, they couldn't fix that. You, you know, um, when you're younger, when I was younger, I would uh, wrestle with the kids, nieces, nephews, um, with Matt, and uh, I think my earpiece is falling off. Is that better? Um, and somebody would always get hurt. One of them would always get hurt, and then I would get in trouble. Um, you guys probably can relate, uh, but you know you're getting old when um, you wrestle with them now and you're the one that gets hurt. Um, it was, a, it was a, a pool thing yesterday and a squirt gun whacked me and, well, makeup artists couldn't fix it. Um, so um, this morning we're continuing our series on the things Jesus taught about. As uh, I prepared this week um, for this morning, I can tell you it was a bit of a struggle. There are some things in God's Word that um, are difficult. They're difficult to hear. And I think this side of heaven, there, um, you know, we may never truly understand all of those things. Um, and I think today's topic is one of those. Um, and in those things, we need to learn to trust God. Um, we need to trust his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, and ultimately in the fact that there is only one true judge in this world who is completely and perfectly just, and that is Jesus. So um, before we go any further, just let me pray. Father God, we give you this morning, we've come here to praise and to worship you and you alone. Uh, We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the hope that you give us in it. Um, The topic today is one our Lord Jesus, uh, you talked about more than anybody else. And uh, I just pray that as we look at your word, as we discuss the things you warned us and talked to us about, we're just reminded most of all of the hope that we have in you that we sung about this morning. Um, we just pray that, uh, Father, you would uh, speak this morning, that your word would speak to us, it would open our hearts and minds to what you want us to hear what you want us to know about you this morning. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So uh, growing up, I was very fortunate. I had parents that loved me, and my dad loved me. He was uh, a man that cared a lot about his family. He uh, spent a lot of time with us. He was busy, but when he had time, uh, he would spend it with the family. He loved my mom and that's great as a kid, when your dad loves your mom, that's something that's, you know, a blessing. But when he had the free time, um, and he wasn't busy, he wanted to spend it with his family. My dad and I had a really good relationship with one another. Um, But my dad was also an LA policeman. Um, He worked for the city of Los Angeles, and he was a detective, Investigator 3. So if you've watched Bosch on Netflix, that was my dad. That was his job. He, uh, yeah, well, not exactly, but you know what I mean. That was his job. He retired in the mid to late 70s, and he was very 
involved and influential in setting up the SWAT program for LAPD. So the reason I tell you that is that growing up, I never saw that side of my dad. That's truly not who he was to me. Um, I knew those characteristics were there. I knew that was a part of his life. I'd heard the stories about the shootouts and the bad guys, and I knew my dad had to use lethal force. Um, but that wasn't the dad that I knew. Um, that wasn't the dad that I experienced. Um, he corrected me when he loved me, or because he loved me. Um, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't perfect, but he was loving, he was caring. And my dad and I had a, a different relationship, so I never encountered those characteristics. I would imagine if you were a criminal, or you were trying to hurt people, you would have seen a completely different side of my dad. One that maybe would have frightened me, I don't know. He was, an, as the Apostle Paul described in Romans chapter 11, God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, even though I didn't experience that side of my dad. That was who my dad was. Um, I think for us as Christians, we many times see our Heavenly Father that way, the way that I saw my dad. We see a, a loving and forgiving father, a merciful dad who cares for us and wants what's best for us, and we forget that he's the all-powerful, all-knowing, always-present Father in heaven that will someday judge the world and pour out his wrath. A righteous judge who will say to those who don't know him, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil for his angels. Before the creator of the universe gave his life for the sins of the world, before he died for you and I, he spent three and a half years teaching his disciples and telling really all of us what he wanted us to know. And one of those was hell. Our focus this morning is going to be on what scripture says. For, the, the <laughs> for those handling slides this morning, it's probably going to be a little bit difficult. Um, but I wanted to focus on what Jesus said, and that's our sermon series anyways, right? Um, and what the Word of God says, rather than what I say. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We're going to put our, our trust in the Word of God today, and uh, I think that's fitting, right? So, the biblical doctrine of hell. It's difficult for all of us. Um, R.C. Sproul admitted it was the doctrine of hell he struggled with the most, and he wasn't alone. It's uncomfortable for us. Probably the greatest reason is we all have family, we all have friends, we all have loved ones, that if they died today, they probably were headed to hell. And it's scary. It's uncomfortable. It's not, I don't know, I don't, I don't like thinking about it. You probably don't as well. It's not a very popular subject. Um, it's, it's not a great um, conversation starter either. I mean, how many of those conversations do you have? You know, hey, Tom, gosh, man, it's getting hot. It was 90 degrees yesterday. I wonder, what, I wonder how hot it is in hell. You know, st steel melts at 2,500 degrees. You think it's hotter than that? You know, who does that, right? Um, 
I think a lot of churches in America struggle with it as well. They tend to focus on a loving Jesus, a forgiving Jesus, the Jesus that is full of grace and, and mercy. He's the light of the world, the Jesus who gave his life for the sins of the world, and he is all those things, thank God. But a perfect Jesus, a holy Jesus, the just and righteous Jesus, the Jesus we're all gonna stand before and give an account, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who will judge the living and dead, this Jesus we don't talk about as much. So, if you would, open your Bibles with me this morning. Um, like I said, there's a lot of scripture here today, so you're gonna be able to follow on the screen. But open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, verses 15 through 16. You can follow along if you would like. There are Bibles in front, uh, in the chair in front of you. You're welcome to use one of those. And as Pastor Simon reminds us all the time, you're welcome to take that home if you don't have one because that would be our gift to you and we would love you for you to have that. So, Revelation 19, 15 through 16. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming to judge the world. The psalmist wrote, Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the work of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 13, God will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And speaking of God's wrath, the Apostle Paul wrote, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay the affliction those who afflicted you or with affliction those who afflicted you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This world wants justice. They want to judge who is just. Every single one of us want justice. We want fairness. We demand it. We cry out for it. We support and rally behind those we feel have been denied it. But the justice this world wants is the justice that benefits them. True justice, a righteous and perfect justice that demands equity for all, a justice that doesn't discriminate but renders to each one according to what they had done, this world says, no, thank you. But it's coming. We live in a world that rejects God, a world that rejects Jesus. As Paul said, a world full of people who suppress the truth about God and his coming judgment. The Apostle Paul described our world over 2,000 years ago in Romans chapter 1. This will be on the screen as well. Paul wrote, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, or God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God, God's righteousness or righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This, this is just unbelievable, isn't it? Is that an accurate assessment of our world today? And yet, God is still at work. It's amazing to me that the majority of people in America still say they believe in God. Um, but it's what they believe that's a problem. This is also true when it comes to life after death or heaven and hell. Statistics from a 2021 Pew Research study found that roughly 70% of Americans believe in heaven and believe they are going there when they die. 60% believe in hell. And shocker, almost none of them believe they're going there. Well, that's not true. Half of 1% say they might be going there. More surprising to me was that what the study said about the Christian community in America. 34% of people, Christians polled in the Christian community say you do not have to believe in God to go to heaven. Let me say that again. 34% of the Christian community say you don't have to believe in God to go to heaven. And the Catholic community, the number is double that, almost 68%. So what does the average American think about themselves? Your friends the people you know, what do they think about themselves? Well, in a recent survey, 81% said they believe that people are inherently good. A three and four believe they themselves are fundamentally a good person. And when researchers asked people how they would compare themselves to others in their lives, almost half went a step further, admitting, at least in their eyes, that they're better than everyone they know. In general, we all think pretty highly of ourselves, right? What the numbers tell us is that almost everybody in America believes that good people go to hell and bad people, or I mean, I'm sorry, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And the bad people are everyone else. And you know who we're talking about. We're talking about murderers. We're talking about child molesters. We're talking about Adolf Hitler, right? Hell is certainly not a place where God would send me or the people that I love and care about. In fact, don't even talk about it because that's going to create a problem, right? Um, church, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the entire Bible. In fact, he talks about hell more than he talks about heaven because he knew that for all of us, the decisions we made would have eternal consequences. Matthew 25 tells us that someday Jesus will come again, and when he does, he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, some to eternal life and some into everlasting punishment. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. It's where you spend eternity that's important to God. The world is full of ideas about what happens after we die, and we've shared some of those. 
But I think it's most important to listen to the creator of the universe, the one that created you and I, that talked to us specifically about it. Why don't we listen to what he has to say about it? So what did Jesus say? Turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 16 of Luke's gospel. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 31. What did Jesus have to say about hell? Beginning in verse 19, he said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted feasted sumptuously every day. And at his, his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him or them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, so why did Jesus warn us about hell? And in your notes, um, you can write, hell is horrible. Jesus' point wasn't that poor people go to heaven here and that rich people go to hell. Jesus is going to make several points, but what's obvious and undeniable is the horrible, vivid imagery he used to describe hell. Verse 23, he said, being in hell is being in torment. Webster's Dictionary describes torment as extreme pain or anguish of body or mind. Jesus was saying hell is total agony. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, being in hell is being in anguish, which is described as torturing grief or dread, extreme distress. This rich man could see heaven. He could see what he could never have. Imagine eternity without any hope. Being in hell is being permanent, verse 26. Once you're there, there is no way out. Jesus said there was a great chasm between heaven and hell. You can't go from one to the other. It's permanent. It's done. You're there for eternity. And verse 28 said, being in hell is being without excuse. You have no one to blame but yourself. Notice what this rich man says. Please let me warn my family so that they don't end up here. This truly reveals his heart, right? Or the bitterness in his heart. If someone had warned me, I wouldn't be here. If I had only known. And look what Jesus says. If they won't repent and believe the scriptures, they won't believe if someone would rise from the dead. And we know our Savior did that, right? In other words, it's not that this man didn't hear the truth. He didn't believe it. He didn't accept it. He did not have faith. 
The Apostle Paul describes this man in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. This should be on your screen as well. Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. How many people do you know today that suppress the truth about God? How many people do you work with? How many people do you come in contact with that would suppress the truth about God? Who would be without excuse? Jesus said in Matthew 25 that when he comes again, he will say to those who don't know him, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Matthew 25, 30. 25, 41 says, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And verse 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus said in Matthew 13, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's that's vivid, right? Jesus said being in hell is being in torment. It's being in anguish. It's being in the outer darkness. No light, right? It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Being in hell is being cursed. It's an eternal fiery furnace is the way Jesus described it. Being in hell is eternal punishment without hope. Jesus went on in Matthew or Mark chapter 9 saying that hell is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The word for hell in chapter 9 is Gehenna, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for hell. Jesus is referencing the valley of Gehenna used during the reign of two of the most evil kings in Judah, um, Ahaz and Manasseh. Who they, these guys sacrificed their children. They burned them alive to the Canaanite god Moloch. Later during Jesus' time, it was a disgusting, maggot-filled trash heap where they would burn the bodies of animals and criminals, and it was always burning because of the stench. The fire never went out there. Church, Jesus' description of hell is utterly terrifying. Many believe the imagery um, he uses is symbolic, but I liked what R.C. Sproul had to say about that. He said, if these images are indeed symbols then we must conclude that the reality is worth, worse than the symbol suggests. The function of the symbols is to point beyond themselves to a higher or more intense state of actuality than the symbol itself can ever contain. That Jesus used the most awful symbols imaginable to describe hell is no comfort to those who see them simply as symbols. Church, Jesus is making a point here and he's using the most awful imagery imaginable to make it. He wants us to get it. Hell hell is horrible. It's not a place you or anybody else would want to go. The Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 2 of Romans that, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will, will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Jesus didn't 
mince words. And he certainly held nothing back. Even with the vivid imagery that he used to describe it, hell is way beyond our ability to comprehend its true horror. That's why we don't talk about it much. That's why it's not, you know, a conversation starter, right? It's a place of unimaginable distress. But to me, as frightening as it is, the imagery is not the most frightening thing I can think of. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verses 28 through 33, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The greatest fear of man should not be hell, but rejecting the creator of the universe who died and gave his life to rescue us from hell. The most frightening thing to possibly hear from Jesus would be, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I heard a quote, or actually read a quote as I was preparing for this. And it said, I would rather be in hell with my friends and family than in heaven with my enemies. I would rather be in hell with my friends and family than in heaven with my enemies. While this statement is wrong on so many levels, right, I guarantee you Jesus would say, no, you would not. No, you would not. The rich man in this story in Luke would say, no, you would not. I guess... In the ultimate display of pride and arrogance and the rejection of God, a person might say that. But according to Jesus, their rejection of the one who died for their sins will turn to agony, torment, and anguish in a place of outer darkness and eternal punishment. Hell is a place of bitter anguish and sorrow, and like the rich man, a place of regret. It's a place of regret, regret for all who end up there. This brings me um, to my second point. Jesus warned us about hell um, because as unfortunate as it is to say this or even to hear this, hell is, is the place where many people are headed. Most of the time, Jesus was talking to the Jews, but he knew he was talking to sinners just like you and me. He was talking to the people, Scripture tells us, were lost and blind and thought they were saved. He was talking to people who believed they were good enough, that they were different, that the kingdom of heaven was created just for them. And most of them... Jesus said we're wrong. Matthew 25 tells us that Jesus was talking to people that spent every single day of their lives eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, living as if judgment was never coming and ignoring the most important decision in their life. People are no different today. And Jesus knew the consequences were eternal. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there, will be, or there are few who find it. The majority of people believe that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. Statistics from the Pew Research study tell us that most people in America believe heaven is a place without suffering and pain, a place where the difficulty of this life will be gone, 
a place where they will be united with loved ones, but most importantly, it's a place where they're headed. And Jesus just said the opposite. I was having dinner with my brother-in-law a few months back, and we were talking about salvation. And he was raised Catholic, and he said he was a Christian. So we started talking about Jesus, and he told me that he no longer believed that Jesus was the only way. He said, as a Catholic growing up, you were told that if you weren't Catholic, you were going to hell. He said, as he got older and he had friends and family members that weren't Catholic, he just thought, you know what? God must be much more understanding and loving than that towards people. Um, that if you try to be a good person, do some things nice for some people at times, um, you go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. Church, that's what most people in America believe, that they can be good enough. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He said, all wicked men's pains and contrivance, which they use to escape hell, while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men, do not secure them from hell one moment. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends on himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done and what he is now doing or what he intends to do. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind how he shall avoid damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that his schemes will not fail. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. Jesus said, difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few that find it. I told my brother-in-law, Tom, the truth, that people have misused the word of God for centuries to manipulate and control other people. But that doesn't mean scripture isn't true or clear about what Jesus did to save us. I told him that we're all sinners. We're all in desperate need of a savior. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I asked him, why would the God of the universe sacrifice his son? Why would Jesus die if we could just fix it ourselves? Right? If we could be good enough, why would he do that? I told him, does that make any sense? Paul wrote in Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The apostle John wrote, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Church, Jesus is the narrow gate. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. When he spoke those words to his Jewish audience, he knew most were like my brother-in-law. They thought they were good enough. As Jews, they spent their entire lives trying to follow the law and be good enough, and most were headed in the wrong direction. It doesn't matter whether you believe there is a God or whether you suppress the truth and say there is no God. Without Jesus, Scripture clearly says you're going to hell. You're going to go there when you die. And Jesus warned many are going there. This brings me to my third point. Jesus warned us because he doesn't want any of us, not one of us, to go there. He knows we're all headed in the wrong direction. He knows we're all lost and blind. He knows that without him, we're all without hope. We're all going the wrong way. 
Paul described our true condition in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. Every single one of us deserves the righteous judgment of God. And yet Jesus desires that we all be saved. The Apostle Paul described God's heart towards us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 saying, in verse 1, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And Peter said the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 2. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me ask you, if you were God, what lengths would you go to? What would you do to save the people that you created? the people that you love. Jesus often used metaphors and hyperbole so that we would get it, so that we would better understand. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says something so off the wall, so profound, so startling, that we can't help but stop and think about it. In verse 29 of Matthew five, he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Matthew 5, 29-30. Could it, he be more direct with us? Could he be any clearer? Could he be more or any, could anything be more important than avoiding the suffering awaiting those who reject Christ? He said in Matthew 16, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Spending an eternity in hell is the last place God wants any of us. And from Genesis to Revelation, Scripture reveals God's plan to reconcile and save us. That's his desire. And he's reached out to mankind and humanity from day one. John three sixteen and 17, of verses that we're familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at that time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. 
What Jesus, Jesus did to save the people he cared about was he warned them, he loved them, and he gave his life for them. And this brings me to my final point. The reality of hell is really bad news, right? That's why God's rescue story is called the good news. Jesus came to save us from the punishment we all, each and every one of us, deserves. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now then, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, Jesus warned you. He warned you and I. He did everything he possibly could to reach us, including sharing the truth, the difficult truth about hell. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I said earlier that we, have, we struggle with this because we all know people. We all have friends. We all have family. We all have people that we love that don't know him. What lengths will you go to to tell them the truth? What would you do to reach the people you know and love? Back in um, 1994, we had the Northridge earthquake. And um, it did a lot of damage for those of you that were around then. Um, But uh, there was an officer, his name was Officer Dean. He was an LA policeman. And he was driving like he did every single day in from Palmdale to Los Angeles to go to work in the early dawn hours of that morning and it was still dark. And as it got on the interchange from the 14 to the five, the freeway had collapsed and he fell hundreds of feet to his death, just drove right off. It was, I imagine, just a horrible thing um, for his family. A lot of people died in that earthquake, but imagine if you knew that that bridge had collapsed. Imagine if you knew that. What would you do? Would you stand on the sidelines and watch? Or would you do everything you could to get up on that that overpass and stop him or put up a warning sign or a barricade? You'd do something, right? I mean, it makes sense to us. We get it. Um, The Apostle Paul got it more than any human being that's ever lived, apart from Christ, I guess. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, um, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means have um, saved some. So the Apostle Paul was, God used him in an amazing way, right? If there was anyone in Scripture that understood God's calling, predestination, the election of the saints, uh, God's sovereignty, it was Paul. No one had a better understanding. No one. Um, of the free will of man. No one understood better 
than Paul. And yet, Paul became all things to all men so that somehow, some way, they would hear the gospel and be saved. In other words, Paul did everything he could. He wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is one of the reasons that Jesus told us, church, this is who we are. Every single, every single one of us are like um, Officer Dean. We're going to drive right off that cliff if Jesus doesn't save us. That's some bad news. Every one of us deserves hell. Every one of us deserves eternal punishment. But God had mercy on us. We didn't deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. And yet while we were disobedient and still in our sin, Christ died for us. That's a message everyone needs to hear. That's the good news that comes out of this bad news that Jesus is telling us about. Hell is real. It's horrible. And someday soon, Jesus is going to come again. And when he does, he's going to separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, some to eternal life and some into everlasting punishment. But Jesus died and paid the price for all of us. That's a message everyone needs to hear. God has a rescue story. He saved us and he's given us the responsibility, the privilege to share this with the ones that we love. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for these very purposes. We're the salt of the earth, Jesus said. We're the light on a hill. Listen, um, I get it. It's uncomfortable, right? Um, it's uncomfortable to talk about. It's not something that comes easy to us to discuss the horror of hell, right? But just imagine for a minute having to spend eternity there. Think about it. Are you willing to be uncomfortable? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I want to pause just for a minute. On your notes, pull your bulletins out for me, would you? Pull it out, grab a pencil. I would like for you to write down the names of people that you thought about this morning. I know you did. I know they came to your mind. They did when I was preparing for this. Just write those names down. People that you love, you care about. People that you know that don't know Jesus. Just take a moment and write those names down. Who do you know that suppresses the truth? Let's bow our heads just for a second and just spend a, a, you know, a minute praying for them, lifting them up to the Lord. In the quiet of your heart, Pray that God would give you an opportunity to share with them, to talk about 
uncomfortable things. I don't know where you are today in your relationship with God right now. I, you do. You came in here this morning. You know, your relationship with God is between you and him. If you've never been here this morning, you know, I am, I'm glad you're here. This is a difficult message. I get it. You know, the, hell is a horrible place. And Jesus says many are gonna go there, but it's important you know that he doesn't want you there. He created you for eternity. He created you to have a personal relationship with him. He loves you, he died for you. That's his purpose, that's his goal. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're like my brother-in-law Tom that thinks he can be good enough. Maybe you're like so many other people who don't even want to think about it. Well, let's not talk about it, right? You s suppress the truth about who God is and you don't want to think about having to give an account for what you've done. Or maybe you've heard the truth here this morning and you don't want to spend eternity there. I don't know. But I do know this. Scripture is clear. Today is the day for you to make that decision. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. You know, life here on earth without Jesus is difficult. It's hard. It's heavy laden. It's burdened. It's a, a life, quite honestly, that is hopeless without him. Um, it's a life of longing for rest. But living eternally without him is far, far worse. Jesus said, it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's an eternity of anguish and regret and sorrow. Jesus is the good news. I don't know where you are when you came in here this morning, but without him, there is no hope, and he's the one we will all stand before someday. He's the one who will judge the living and the dead, and ultimately, he's the one who will say to us on that day, one of two things, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me. You cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Where will you spend eternity? If you don't know the answer to that question, then today is the day because the apostle Paul said, you are without excuse. Let's pray.